Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our latest instalment of uh, Remote Agile London. Great to see some returning uh, faces and some new ones too. Um, just a couple of initial house rules, if possible. Um, can I please ask that you all remain on mute throughout the whole session? Um, I don't mean to be rude, but it's just, it really helps with the fluidity of the session if, uh, and also fairness on the speakers to be given the opportunity to deliver their talks um, and answer any questions you have at the end. With regards to questions, please can I ask that you message them to me very clearly, uh, privately in the chat below, and I will ask them to the speakers at the end. So, um, as I say, welcome to Agile London. We've had a great response uh, to this event. Uh, this evening, we have talks from Sujit Uni, um, who's CTO at Paysafe Group, uh, Jana Lace, um, who is an Agile transformation coach, and Jeff Watts, uh, who is a Scrum and leadership coach. So I've been very much looking forward to this one. Um, we are kicking off with um, Sujit. Um, as I say, CTO at Paysafe Group, and his talk tonight is moving more traditional models to agile ways of working. So, Sujit, over to you. Thanks, Alex. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, I think uh, what I'll do is start the conversation just in terms of my experiences dealing with moving kind of uh, classic financial services um, onto a agile model. Um, and just to kind of keep the conversation grounded and I don't stray, um, I'm going to kind of use a very basic structure, right? Where the intent is to very quickly talk through uh, why firms pursue the agile path, right? Um, my pragmatic learnings in terms of um, how to approach the transformation, what works well versus what doesn't. And then having lived this journey a couple of times, um, I've kind of got a blueprint or in my mind, I have a blueprint in terms of what works across the key pillars that make up um, most organizations. And then I think finally, um, close the conversation more with the with a view on just how we manage the wider organization through the transformation, um, because it, it very much is a journey, right? Um, and again, most of my insight comes directly from the financial services industry perspective. So to that extent, um, maybe a little, uh, a little biased. Um, quite happy to take back uh, feedback in terms of uh, experiences that are different and um, what we could potentially do better going forward. Um, so top of the house, clarity of purpose, right? I mean, financial services historically and particularly, um, I would say financial services that, are, that have been in the bulge bracket uh, space. Um, I think one of the things that works well in terms of starting to move from a classic traditional financial services model where the business in itself offers products as services um, and largely uses technology in a very waterfall centric approach to deliver those products. Um, having a clarity in terms of why we are doing what we are doing uh, becomes really, really key, right? And, um, and I've kind of seen the entire spectrum, right? I mean, um, I would say most firms have a very firm bias towards the fact that they pursue the thought process around agile. Um, 
predominantly with the intent of saying that they're looking to roll products out faster to market, right? Um, and I've seen successes and failures when working under that premise, right? There's very much the element of bringing in agile predominantly with the intent of kind of being able to improve customer engagement and the customer experience in itself, right? And then of course, um, um, there's very much the thought process around wanting to kind of adopt the agile way of working, um, largely with the intent of kind of building out a more sustainable uh, technology landscape, right? And, and like I say, I've, I've worked with firms where we've seen all three reasons kind of underpin the move, right? Um, most markedly, right? When you kind of end up looking at um, uh, the first of the lot, right? Which is pure agility in terms of the ability to be able to respond to market and roll products out faster. Um, what I've seen is firms typically tend to stumble with that thought process because what they find out is during the transformation, um, things actually don't get faster, right? I mean, prior to Agile, um, a lot of financial services firm had actually honed the waterfall method down to a point where they were able to roll out products every quarter, right? Um, and, and in effect, I think what Agile did initially was, or at least in the firms that I worked in, was that it slowed that process down, right? Um, but the piece that was actually missed was that the products that were being rolled out as part of the process were actually probably much more fit to market than the products that we were rolling out under the waterfall view, because in essence, we were reacting to customer needs, right? Um, so A, I think having a very clear view, and this is right from the top down, right? Exec down, uh, a very clear view of why we are going down the journey of pursuing an agile way of working um, is very critical because in essence, that helps level set the organization um, and get very clear learnings in terms of what the success criteria are, right? The second element of it, predominantly is the focus and approach, right? Um, and again, within large firms, what you tend to see is the pendulum shifts, moves to extremes, right? So when, when the agile journey starts, there's this massive wave of change in the organization where everything needs to be agile, right? And that in itself starts to kind of almost hamstring the organization in terms of being able to move forward, right? And within the financial services view, We've, what we've seen work very well for us is actually taking a much more pragmatic approach, right? When you when you look at the tech stack in any organization, um, and for that matter, the service offerings that they have, um, channels, systems that support channels and customer interaction, absolutely, right? I think they need to be agile. Um, they need to respond to both, you know, business needs in terms of rollout of new products, geographical expansion, as well as at the same time, uh, continue to meet uh, customer journey requirements that uh, customers have. But then as you start to go further down the stack, I think the element of agility starts to diminish a little bit, right? So at the very end of the spectrum is if you end up going and looking at the more utilitarian systems in any organization, right? Um, be it the ledger, um, like very literally, like a ledger changes maybe once a year, right? I mean, um, it's, it's one of those things where you probably don't want the ledger to be agile um, because if you get that part of your ecosystem wrong, um, potentially someone could end up going, in, going to jail, um, especially in the financial services organized world. So A, I think having a very clear view in terms of, you know, once you start the journey, what parts of your ecosystem actually need to be agile, um, what parts of your ecosystem probably don't need to be as agile as 
um, you know, other parts of it. And then there is very much a place in an organization where water, waterfall works well. This in my mind does a couple of things, right? One is it doesn't put the entire organization through this throes of change um, where a very large part of your stakeholder group where pure agile doesn't have direct relevance, um, doesn't get disillusioned with the uh, journey. And more importantly, it allows you to take what resources you have and focus them in the areas that really matter, right? Um, so again, kind of getting that viewpoint very early in the game and putting the principles around how that journey will be managed, right? The right trade-offs in terms of um, how we do a priority, right? Um, the right trade-offs in terms of just what, what the business can expect and what they can't expect, right? You know, I've got the scars on my back with the, um, in one of the earlier uh, implementations where we had done where Agile was very much about um, almost moving the organization forward without putting a date out there, right? So we kind of almost went back to our business and said, hey, we are now Agile, you'll get what you get when you get it, right? Um, that never works, right? Because most financial services predominantly work in a B2B, B2C kind of environment. There's always a date to be hit out there. So there's an element of taking your Agile uh, journey and putting the right guardrails around it so that you're, A, you're meeting the business expectations and more, far more importantly, um, you're bringing them along in the, on the journey, right? Because the most successful implementations in my mind have always been the ones where business took the lead, right? And was willing to change from the top um, all the way down to actually getting the uh, value proposition out. The third element that I wanted to talk about was predominantly around once we started the journey, um, we kind of looked at success and the success of the journey in itself broadly around three pillars, right? Like in my mind, all three pillars needed to fall in place for us to actually get to an agile workplace, right? Because most financial organizations tend to have a very deep footprint when it comes to tech debt. And then within that tech debt, most of the systems typically tend to be monolithic, right? Um, so A, getting the architecture right in terms of being able to, in a very systematic manner, you know, in line with the approach that uh, that we took, right? Being able to actually hollow out our monolithic ar architectures across the financial services space, um, both banks and payments, um, payment firms in my, uh, in my, within my background, where we kind of took a very, very marked approach, right? In a very systematic way, built and deployed a microservices architecture that actually allowed us to move in an agile manner, right? And within that space, your approach to how you design your microservices architecture is very key, right? Um, be it hierarchical, right? Um, be it capability-based or be it customer journey-based. Um, my experience has been kind of using a customer journey-based approach to kind of developing your microservices architecture typically tends to be the path of least resistance, right? But getting the architecture changes done so that A, you can actually support an agile way of working, really, really critical. The second element of it was pure process and tooling, right? And again, if you look at a large financial services organization, um, that element becomes really, really critical, right? Just in terms of two examples, right? For us to even get this journey going, um, we had to standardize on a couple of things, right? Tooling in terms of CI/CD pipelines has to be consistent, right? And if you look up, look like a look at a firm like J.P. Morgan Chase or Barclays um, that has well over sixty thousand employees doing tech work, um, that in itself can be a challenge, 
So again, kind of loops back to my conversation on approach, right? Where you've got to figure out what pockets you're going after and make sure that we get our tooling right in that space. Um, getting some of the principles around predominantly, you know, how we do our logging, how we do our monitoring has to be consistent across that ecosystem. Um, otherwise, there's just no way to get a marked agile element out. And the very last element and probably the most critical, right, is getting the right culture. Um, you're in essence taking large organizations of thousands of individuals um, and moving them on this journey, right? Some directly kind of contributing to the agile journey, um, some probably more peripheral, but still supporting the journey, right? A very critical element there is how do we get the culture moving more effectively, right? Um, how do you take an organization, build the right culture right from top down, right? So when you're looking at the business, the business needs to start looking at its value propositions in the context of, you know, um, uh, MVPs, um, I mean, and again, the entire end of the spectrum, right? Right from minimum viable products to most lovable products. But the business has to start thinking in terms of being able to build their value propositions in small bite-sized pieces, right? The ability to be able to put the right KPIs around it, um, the maturity in an organization to be able to take that, break that into pieces that can actually be delivered in terms of consumable business value. Um, and in my personal opinion is tech is really the last shoe to drop, right? If you get that part of the ecosystem working really well, tech teams are able to very quickly kind of go back and adapt to that ecosystem. Um, but the reverse doesn't work very well, right? I've not seen a lot of success with tech-driven agile transformations, uh, predominantly because we're just not able to get the business there in terms of their value proposition. So um, again, I think getting that culture uh, organization-wide were really important. Um, last but not least, you know, the best of plans go off, <laughs> off kilter, right? Uh, the ability to be able to understand what our approach was, lay it out, and then over time adapt it as we go along, right? Um, very critical. The communication piece, right? I mean, most journeys typically you know, will be anywhere from 12 to 18 months. Um, and one of the most critical things in large organizations um, is to make sure that the organization itself doesn't lose patience with the transformation, right? Um, that there has to be enough communication. And when I think of communication, that's you know, almost playing up your wins, but you've got to get your wins going to a place where the organization sees immediate benefit that gives them the, the, the share, I would say, will to kind of continue to stay with the transformation because there will be bumps along the road, right? But as long as the organization stays invested, um, it gives you that critical period where you live through that entire period of almost friction while the transformation is happening. And right when that element of, um, you know, that hockey stick effect comes where the transformation takes off, right? Your, your stack's in the right place. You've got the right tooling in place. The culture is there. People are actually thinking agile um, is when you start to see that piece. But again, organizations where the patience runs out right before that thing happens is where agile typically tends to die in an organization, right? People just go back to their old way of working. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of my spiel as such. Um, and again, I think I only had about 20 odd minutes. So I don't know how I'm doing on time, uh, Alex. Uh, that was fine, Sajid. If, if, if you finished your talk there, yeah, that was absolutely spot on. Thank you very much.
Um, we did get a couple of questions come in, um, which is great. And so thank you everyone for those. I will be sure to uh, ask them to suggest at the end. If you could just unshare your screen um, now. And fingers crossed that we've got audio for Yana. You're currently muted. Oh, yeah. There we go. How are we? There we go. We've got audio. Yes, perfect. Yes, um, last minute dialed in. Are you able to? Perfect. Are you able to? Oh, perfect. There we go. Okay, well, I'm going to pass yes. you all over to Yana. Um, she was supposed to speak last week. We had some technical difficulties, so I'm really pleased to have her back this week. Um, Yana is an Agile Transformation Coach, and her talk is Teaching Old Dogs New Tricks. Over to you. Hey. So I'm going to jump straight in because the talk's already getting you to think about probably some limiting beliefs or assumptions about the title, Teaching Old Dogs New Tricks. Well, to start off with, my title wasn't anything too hard to think of. Really, I just wanted to have a talk that's going to give you some tricks and tips that hopefully you can get some success with in your own transformation. Grab some handy content from credible sources. And at the end, I've actually put a story in a case example of my own real life, including some live feedback. And the reason I put that in is as a professional or anyone starting a transformation, feedback is probably the hardest thing to do. And so I just wanted to show you kind of what feedback I got from a certain project. But I want to start with giving you something. So let just skip kind of straight over all the up stuff I've done and I just want to focus on the right hand side about purpose and purpose for me is being the change and the transformation wanted in the world. Whatever that is, I really started to challenge myself just after my recent contract about being authentic and showing up how I wanted to show up and so I challenge you to really think about what purpose you're doing in your work day to day and how you're showing up and so my talk is actually around the purpose and the change that I want to give to you rather than about me. My mission right now, I don't know what mission I'm on. I'm really excited for my next adventure. And right now, it's this talk. So, teaching old dogs new tricks with your limiting beliefs. You may have thought I was gonna talk about teaching overage people, maybe some tricks or tips about Agile, but actually, this is how I use innovation and a mashup to come up with my talk topic. So the first trick I'm going to teach you is a trick to deal with creative blocks. And really what I did was take two polar opposites, a common thing, teaching old dogs new tricks, Nagar Digital Transformation, and then Google teaching old dogs new tricks article, intertwined it with my own experiences. And then I took my purpose and I thought about what needs you might have, especially right now as we start going through a new era and a digital era of change. So hopefully my Examples don't end up leaving my speech and talk to you looking like a dog in a corporate tuxedo office. But that's kind of the mashup that I got. Um, another example of brilliant mashups, unfortunately, I couldn't find the restaurant article, but a mashup is really where you get two very polar opposite ideas. You put them together and you use that to generate some products, services or something. So the guy with the sombrero, I couldn't find it, but recently a restaurant stood out for COVID that opened in Australia and they decided to do social distancing in their restaurant by using two metre sombreros. So mashups are used all the time, they're really handy and sometimes they can add a bit of humour when you've got a problem that you might not know how to solve. 
A lot of the things that I'm going to give you are context and tricks and we're going to jump straight in actually because I don't want to just overload you with information. I want to think about using some design thinking from D-School which is a great um, little pamphlet. It's a cheat book that I use and I usually advise everyone if you haven't um, seen it before to get a copy. It's brilliant with teams, it's brilliant when you're trying to come up with ideas and ways of making talks or maybe a problem that you have and it gives you hints and tricks on how to use design thinking to solve them. So what we're going to do is use the power of three and I want to design a new you. I want you to start thinking about your purpose and your skills. So take a moment right now and if you know it, drop it in the chat. What is your purpose? whether it be day-to-day, -day, in an organization, or possibly what makes you amazing. And just drop it in the chat. I'm just gonna toggle out just so I can see what we have. Oh, I'm hearing some pings, that's good. I'm on presenting mode, so maybe we won't. And then for the next bit, I want you to go through and I want you to think of yourself as person number one. You as you are right now in your role. What is your title? What are your skills? And what's that special something something that you bring to the team? Now, I've left the other ones saying you as you are right now in your role because they're currently in a transition. Where do you want to go and where do you want to trans transition to? Or maybe there's a new opportunity that you want to become. I want you to look at now your first person, you as you are right now in your role and think about where you want to go. Jot down anything that you have that are ideas. And then finally, for the third person of the persona, you as you are right now. If you could do anything in the world, what was it? What was that thing that you wanted to do? Whether you're a little kid or maybe it's right now what you're passionate about. So we've got some really good ones about delivery manager to a coach, a purpose, and I'm going to read out at the top is to improve the way of improve the way a business delivers software and build a thriving, honest, and open dev team environment. Be better than yesterday. Well, my goal is to be better than the talk I had last week. So I just want to explain how this is a quick little exercise to make you look about yourself and to think about three things. 
As a professional, when you start your career or as a job, you're a junior. So I started as a scrum master. I never thought that I'd be living in London, transforming or doing a talk. So when I first ever did this, my role as I was, I thought I was going to be the CEO of the company I was going to work at. I was dedicated. Then something happens in your life and all of a sudden you're finding your role right now is very different with change and transformation. And that's what makes change and transformation so amazing and why I love it. It gives you an opportunity to be creative, not just think about yourself, but how you might help others around you and be put into situations that are complex. And then the best one, I want to actually quote from a team that I had recently. When I asked them what their third persona was, of if you could do anything in the world, what was it? My brand new product owner had said she would do anything to become a race car driver. She would clean the cockpit, she would be the rubbish pickup, but she wanted to be next to it. Now, what she didn't realize at that point was the skills that she had could potentially have seen her go to a Formula One race car race. She could have worked in project management there. She could have done events. And it wasn't until we started going around the circle and actually sharing more about ourselves, more about what made us amazing, what made us skilled, but also what made us individual, that really brought out that potential in this new team. So for her being a race car driver, automatically a lot of people had a relatedness to her or something to talk about. This was a brand new team, mind you. We also had another team member who was secretly a published author, so they definitely over time made story writing a lot more interesting. So I just want to pause there. Does anyone have something that they wanted to be? Could be anything in the world, a little bit on the outside of the spectrum. What did you want to do when you grew up? Let's see. Cricketer. Oh, what team? Very good. Just going to hope one or two more people. Something that you wanted to do when you grow up. Got a brain surgeon, American footballer, salsa dancer, and hypnotherapist. Amazing. Thank you for your participation in this. Yvette? Okay. I'm going to just in fact talk about some really great things. The reason being, we're so lucky. We're in a digital evolution where things are changing. Opportunities in which we thought weren't possible as a kid, or maybe we started a career that we thought would never move us to somewhere else, has now opened opportunities where we can take our current skills and knowledge that is the basis of our current title right now, and we can look at the things that we wanted to be as a child. And we can use those knowledge and skills to tap into the digital knowledge that we have, the transformation skills, or maybe it's a learning journey or some hobby. But it's those skills that we can embed into Agile and everything that we do that actually allows us to create the products and services that make what people need in the world amazing. It's not the generic business spec that says, we need a feature that does X, Y, Z because it will increase 
um, in performance, it will increase uptake. We can't guarantee that, but when we start building with purpose, intention, and we start showing up at work every day with a passion, a vision, and a dream, it really does change how we start things. So I want you to take a moment now and just really think about that your dream that was so far away could be something that is now tangible. Maybe you're looking at technology or you're working with teams that maybe might one day build those products and services, or you might volunteer some spare time. For me, I always wanted to give back to the charity that gave me Christmas presents as a child because I grew up in government housing. So for me, I volunteered to actually work in their IT system to help them transform and change them agile because to say thank you, it wasn't the £10 note that was going to go in the tin, but it was my days and my hours that I wanted to put in to give them the skills that they could change and grow and create amazing services and products. From that, that team, once I left, was able to create one of the first online school counseling and mentorship programs for disadvantaged kids and allow them to access it through libraries or any other means of technology because there was a declining uptake of people that were able to spend their time helping kids do their homework and that allowed them to have the virtual connection. So don't ever let what you think you couldn't do or what you could do, or what you dreamed of doing, ever be that limiting belief. Because as the talk says, teaching old dogs new tricks is just a metaphor. It's just a limiting belief, and it's definitely, definitely not true. And so what I want to reflect on now is the second part of the talk. And I'm just going to leave it here and actually read it out, which is called the mismatch. And mismatches are things that will happen all the time. And this one's from a great book from Robert Keegan and Leslie Ulaley, Immunity to Change. When we experience the world as too complex, we are not just experiencing the complexity of the world. We are experiencing a mismatch between the world's complexity and our own at this moment. There are only two logical ways to mend the mismatch. You've got to reduce the world's complexity, or you've got to increase your own. So, the good study about this and some of the things was that limiting beliefs thought that by the time we were 18, back in science, that we stopped developing complexity and growth in the brain. But scientists actually discovered that with age, we were able to solve complexity and have better problems, um, problem-solving skills. So over time, what we thought was a limiting belief and assumption that by the time you were 20, that's all you had, um, was actually not correct. And when scientists use more technology and newer technology to, manage, to measure the neurons in the brain over time, they realized that people could solve better complex problems over time. And so over time, in my own journey, I got to a point where I felt the world was becoming more complex in my mind. I felt like I was the 20-year-old that had stopped learning. The, the complexity of the world, the stress, the new beginnings that I wanted for my career and myself, I was at a crossroads. And so when I first saw this, I thought, brilliant. The older I get, the more complexity of the mind. But not just that. The people I worked with, a lot of the people were older, were more experienced, and they were the people that would challenge me, teach me, and inspire me. 
So what I just want to share with this slide in particular is when you see something new coming that might be younger, it's always good to reflect on this slide and remember over time we can solve complex problems. But what I love about the bubbles is the diversity and all the stories and the life experiences that create what we have today. Agile didn't come from nothing. It came from thought leaders coming together to write the original manifesto. Then it came with more thought leaders that were inspired, that created more frameworks. And then you have great authors that wrote fantastic books. And now we're getting to hear from practitioners all over the world using digital tools. We don't just have to read a book anymore. So simply, as good old MC Hammer would say, before I take you on a transformation journey, or before you take yourself on one, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. And so that's what I had to do, and the lesson I had to learn. Recently, just before COVID, I was probably put in one of my most professionally complex and harder situations of my life. What I had to do was I'd made a promise to myself that I wanted to show up authentic, that I really wanted to push myself beyond the boundaries, that I wanted to step out of the comfort zone. And so I naively thought that everything was in check for going on an adventure that the bank had asked me to do in the Channel Islands. What I didn't know was that this particular island had never heard of Agile, had never had a single role that was Agile, and was so back stuck that nearly everything was paper-based. So was I ready? Did I feel responsible? And did I realize that the executive kind of left the accountability on me? Yeah. Did I think that there would be a great support network coming from the parent company, that it would be exactly the same? 100%. I had naively taken my limiting beliefs and assumptions with me, assuming that one part of the transformation, the biggest part, had amazing ripple effects and that it landed exactly the same with every other team. Very naive. I then had to consult with some subject matter experts and reiterate, was I informed, honestly? And the truth was, I hadn't. And I had shown up ready to take a group of people on a journey. I had to take them through the Virginia Satir process of change, but secretly, I was doing the same thing. So really when I started and started observing the team and was told, you can create whatever team you want, you just can't. Hire any resources, you don't have any availability, the only Developers that we have are third-party consultants and you can only select one person from each team. So I did what every person would do. I went through the change curve very, very quickly until I got to a transforming idea. And that idea was visiting back and really remembering what things were needed, what things were the basis of what I'd learned at Agile that inspired me. So I went back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. As far as I was aware, their psychological needs were met, but the safety needs were now gray. I'm asking people to step into a 
pilot journey of something so new that they had no one to reflect on, refer to, or even have an example. I then started to realize that the psychological needs were not met. They weren't belonging to the transformation because they had their own unique culture, their own unique business needs, and their own unique abilities that made them amazing. What I loved about this team was that they were all over 40. They'd all had a minimum tenure of 13 years, and they'd all done the same job for a minimum of five. So what I like to ask you to realize is that it's not always about a magical check sheet. You're going to hear successful stories. You're going to read books. Sometimes complexity is hard and to challenge yourself, you need to also think about the complexities, but also the simplicities that make people and teams special. So I took this team on a journey and I asked myself, how did I want to show up? How could I really be there for them? So I moved to the island for some time, leaving my partner in London. I immersed myself in the culture, the failed digital transformations that the, the country, I should say, or island had gone through. And I wanted to challenge myself professionally. So if we look to the right-hand side, we can see the Tuckman's model. So I did something that was probably the hardest thing I would ever have to do in my self-development side of my career. I decided to get feedback from a brand new team that was in the storming phase. And to do that, I consulted my partner who is a brilliant agile transformation coach. And he really does put me through the change process and challenge me a lot. So I went to him and he said, well, you're gonna to have to take some days off because we need to work on allowing you to deal with a problem that you haven't dealt with before. And that starts with you. And so I went on a little journey and I discovered the Leadership Circle. So if you've never heard of this, the Leadership Circle is a 360 uh, profile that looks at feedback around you. Uh, it uses a wheel. I'm gonna paraphrase this because it is quite complex and you can research it. But I wanna focus on the feedback and I want you to remember feedback is a snapshot in time in the contextual situation and so when you get these slides or if you want to take a moment you can see the feedback that I got drive determination and the ability to engage others on new ways of thinking but the one thing I knew I had to adjust being Australian was speaking slowly to be more effective in delivering a message the tone is great the intention is clear Message could be more effective if delivered in slower mode. Cultural barriers are quite difficult. And as we move into an era of more multiculturalism and more of a digital workplace, we've got to reflect not only on others around us, but our own. What is it that makes us similar? What makes us different? And maybe what things do we have to adapt? Not because that it's something wrong with the other person, but to challenge ourselves. So what things have you had to maybe adapt or change when you joined a team that makes you different and show up more better? I'm gonna jump back in and have a look at the chat. 
tell me one problem that you had to change about yourself to overcome. Okay. Being able to accept feedback on my work. I have to say the feedback was really hard for me and feedback is hard. So I challenge you, I got this feedback within the first month of hiring a team that had volunteered uh, to go on an adventure with me and I got it during the storming phase. The reason being is I want to be a skilled practitioner and being able to take people through that forming, storming, norming and performing as quickly as possible but at the right speed for them. And I had shown up with limiting beliefs and assumptions that they were the same as everyone else in the transformation, that they'd been given the same support. And so what I invite you to do is try getting feedback. The headings are there um, in this talk if you want to use some of those headings that are used in the Leadership Circle profile. Or simply just ask a simple question. How am I doing? And I can tell you, it's hard. And the first thing you want to do is come up with all the reasons why it's them and not you. But rather than blame them, rather than come up with excuses, I had to remind myself it was about what I wanted to be, and that was being authentic. That's showing my most recent feedback to a whole room of strangers in a talk to say, it's not just about your skills or the certificates. It's really, really about how are you doing and connecting with others? How are you sharing your experiences? And how much are you actually being interested in them? So my journey was more insightful, more powerful, not about what I could do for them, because at the end, they're a permanent agile team, the very first in the island. They attend digital government meetups, and they're the thought leaders now naturally promoting new ways of working in quite a stuck, what I would call stale industry where they're located. And they're the change in the world. But it wasn't about me. It was about me learning about them. And so it doesn't matter at what level that you are or where you want to go. The tips and tricks in the talk, use those power-free to learn things that make your team magical or try some feedback. And so with that, I'm going to close my talk with one thing. What do you want to change in this world? And I'd like to see that in the talk. So one thing, what would you like to change in this world? End of lockdown. Making it kinder and more supportive for the disadvantage. Thank you, Alex and Rohit. More acceptance of people and our difference. I'm just chuckling at the last comment, so I won't read that for anyone in. And definitely less stress is a good one. So 
everyone. My talk was quite lightweight. I didn't want to overdo you with information. Everything's available, but I really just wanted to leave you with how you want to change others' lives and how do you show up in the transformation and help you on your journey because the best times that you will go on an adventure really are when it's at your worst and the world is so complex that you have nothing else but to grow and work on growing yourself. So thank you very much and I'll hand it back to Alex. Yana, thank you very much. Really great talk. Um, and thank you, thank you Femi. I'll, uh, I'll make sure that we're certainly not one of those recruitment agencies that lies about jobs uh, that they're recruiting for. I do know that goes on. Um, we're certainly really strict about that. So, uh, I, uh, yeah, that can tarnish our industry. Okay, so um, keep the questions, clear questions coming in, guys, so I can ask them to um, our speakers at the end. I'm now going to hand over to Jeff Watts. Jeff is a scrum and leadership coach, and his talk is on why great teams are more important than ever. Jeff, over to you. Cool. Thanks, Alex. So let's share this one and get it up there. Is that working okay? Can I get a thumbs up from someone? That's looking okay. Yeah, that's perfect. Great. Thank you. So, yes, why are great teams needed more than ever? Um, so I've been, I've been doing a few talks recently because um, a few people have been asking me to talk about uh, my new book, which is great. And first thing I say to everybody is I feel really guilty talking about a new book that's coming out with, with everything that's going on in the world. Um, but there is, there's, for me at least, there's this view for, that um, right now it's, it's great teams that are going to help companies, first of all, survive uh, this period because a lot of companies may well not, uh, but also thrive. Uh, and I think it's those great, great teams that are going to help make those organisations make the difference. Now, I think we can probably all agree, although I, do, I don't really like it when people start by trying to guess what I'm thinking. Um, but I think we can probably all agree that we're living in interesting times. I think the word interesting is something we can probably all agree on. Um, for me, one of the things that I found particularly interesting, having worked with organisations that have been toying with, to various degrees, this idea of, shall we become more of an agile organisation, shall we not? Do we really mean it? Do we not? They've kind of been faced with a really stark choice over the last couple of months. And that choice has been about how much do they truly trust and enable their people. And seeing how different companies have reacted to that choice, they might not have realized it was a choice, quite often it's, it's subconscious, but seeing how organizations have reacted has been quite fascinating to me. I think on the whole, generally, most organizations um, and most national institutions by and large have, have acted pretty well in the early stages of the crisis. So when, when there is a crisis, uh, I'm not just talking about a pandemic here, but a business crisis, the first thing leaders really need to do is they need to make some quick decisions, undemocratic decisions, um, and that's the right thing to do. Uh, we don't necessarily want a lot of conversation and a lot of people's uh, inputs into something when a, when a really quick decision is needed. And those quick decisions are there to try and stabilize, first of all, the business and the people um, but also then the immediate future. It's the right thing to do. Um, and it's also what people are looking for. And that's important as well, because 
if leadership acts as the people they're leading expect them and want them to act, then that organisation and their leadership will avoid what, what I tend to call motivational debt. If I'm acting as a leader in a very directive, decisive, undemocratic way, but the people that I'm acting towards are expecting a democratic approach or autonomy, then they're going to be incredibly frustrated and dissatisfied by that. But equally, if that, those people, that team, are expecting me to be decisive and, and not democratic, but I come in and ask them, you know, what, well, what do you think we should do? Then that's going to cause motivational debt as well, just a different kind of motivational debt. So that's a good thing. Okay, so leaders on the whole have acted pretty well in the start of this. Get things safe, simple messages, clear messages, make some decisions. Unfortunately, for some people, the crisis has been an excuse. An excuse to indulge their somewhat controlling nature, shall we say, more than perhaps they should have done. And I th maybe like me, you've heard some of the stories of employers installing tracking and monitoring software and policies on their people who've been you know, forced to work from home. And it's, it's very easy to, to stay in that mode of, okay, we, yeah, we need to make decisions. It's still a crisis. It's still a crisis. Um, but actually, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of evidence around that we've been aware of for a long time that actually micromanaging past the point of crisis is going to be counterproductive. For other companies, the few that stand out, this has actually been a fantastic opportunity. Now, that might sound very callous for me to say. Um, I'm not trying to downplay the, the, the bad situation at all, but for some organisations, they've really thrived here. And I'm not talking about the obvious examples of people, you know, Zoom, who've had a massive growth in um, users and licences and things like this. And as we were talking about beforehand, the, the companies that are selling all the, the home working equipment like microphones and lights and cameras. I'm talking about those organisations whose leadership have for, for months and years invested in the, the development of the relationship between them and the people that they work with. They've, they've built up trust, they've built up goodwill through, uh, among other things, enabling autonomous self-organizing teams to solve business valuable problems. And, and those organizations, when faced with this situation, have those teams have actually taken to it like the proverbial duck to water because this is something that they've been used to, you know, actually being left to their own devices and given some steer and checking in now and again, this is what they've been used to. Um, so they, that's where those two types of organizations for me and those two types of leadership have really gone in very starkly different paths. I was gonna talk you through a, a very simple exercise I was introduced to, but I didn't know whether I had time. I'll I, I try, I try and squeeze it in. I, years and years ago, when I was first introduced to the concept of self-organizing teams, uh, so I was a classically trained project manager in a very bureaucratic hierarchical organization. So I believed as a manager, my job was to tell people what to do. Um, and some people were trying to, trying to change my mind about that, trying to change my perspective and, and, and make a servant leader out of me. Uh, and I was introduced to this exercise uh, called 50 Steps. And in it, you had to pair up. And one person was the boss and one person was the worker. The job of the worker was to produce 50 steps, basically walk 50 paces in the room. The job of the boss was to instruct the worker without touching them, using some simple commands, such as forwards, backwards, left, right, faster, slower, that kind of thing. The worker had to obey the boss. 
and there were some fairly static obstacles in the room tables and chairs but there were also some relatively complex variables in the room other people trying to complete this task at the same time if you bumped into them or if you bumped into the wall you bumped into obstacles you know there was a penalty and within the time box very very few pairs actually managed to achieve it and the second part of the exercise was there were no bosses uh, everybody had to achieve 50 steps using their own autonomy deal, dealing with the same situation so as well as achieving the 50 steps within the time box both employee and boss achieved it so you more than doubled the productivity and it was a very simple oversimplistic um, example of the difference between command and control but it kind of stuck with me and this idea of complex environments having a directive leader and micromanagement reduces productivity and increases motivational depth the person in the in the employee the worker role was really not happy about being told to walk forward when they knew they were going to hit a table um, and in this situation here where we have greater complexity and we do have greater complexity i mean even if you take aside the pandemic working in software development working in product development that is a complex endeavor it involves other human beings and other human beings are complex weird things so it's complex anyway and when you add on to the fact that we're all working in a new way that's in suboptimal conditions you know i've got kids that I, I aren't going to school uh, so and i've got bandwidth issues and all sorts of different things i don't get the same communication channels that i had before the complexity is increased so we need rather than to micromanage and that's understandable because if i was a manager in an organization my neck was on the line and i can't see what's going on i'm going to be craving information and progress reports even if i know it's counterproductive so what we really need is great teams these great teams who have the ability to self-organize not just themselves but with their colleagues to deal with the complexity as they see it so that's that's the kind of context for what i'm talking about and what i've written about and i've been lucky enough to work with teams from lots of different domains lots of different industries uh, so from sujit's financial services to um i think Yana, you work in financial services at the moment as well yeah um to pharmaceuticals to insurance to completely outside of software and product development research marketing sports teams even even i've, I've done a bit of work with medical teams um and while every team is absolutely unique they absolutely are there are a few common patterns that i've noticed and i'm not saying that you know I've, I've found the secret or anything but just some things that i found quite useful to, to notice that these things have in common now i'm not going to have enough time to go through everything in detail but a little bit of an overview as to what i'm talking about when i talk about a great team these sort of five characteristics that i notice regardless of industry regardless of domain um, regardless of uh, the product that they're working on the service that they're working on it could be voluntary teams school teams sports teams whatever all these great teams that i've seen have a habit of self-improvement they take getting better seriously the other thing they take seriously is quality you know, they, they attach their their name their personal reputation to what it is that they're doing building providing serving producing um, they have a strong sense of togetherness yeah the team comes first and uh, that sort of uh, we are in this together thing they're brave you know they take audacious steps and i saw in the comment earlier on somebody when when yana asked what you know, what's the one thing you'd like to see different in the world and somebody commented about you know i'd like people to always be able to work outside of their comfort zone 
great teams regularly step outside of their comfort zone. I can talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But equally, as well as getting better and, and focusing on quality and feeling like a good team and being brave, all great teams deliver. Right? They all find a way to deliver stuff. I'm going to very briefly talk you through each of these five um, uh, and give you a little bit of an example. So self-improvement. Okay, all, all good teams improve. All great teams improve. Not because someone tells them to improve, not because they're paid or incentivized to improve, but because they want to, because it actually gives them a bit of a kick to get better. They like knowing that they're a little bit better today than they were yesterday. Another hallmark of, of Jana's talk there. And one of the big differences that I've seen between good teams and great teams, and actually before I go any further, good teams themselves are, are really good. You know, a lot of organizations that I've been in, a lot of teams that I've been in, wouldn't even classify themselves as good teams. Yeah, so good teams are already really, really a nice thing to be a part of, significantly better than just groups of people uh, lobbed together, resources, some organizations call them, and said, right, you're working together. Now, that's not a team. Okay. Good teams are already way above that. But great teams are that sort of 5% that really, you know, and, and you might only be a great team for a while. You might come back down from being that. But it's the little things that tend to set those apart. So most teams, uh, in fact, all teams, I would say, and this is no slight on them. This is not uh, an insult to that team by saying this, but all teams have massive glaring opportunities to get better in the early days. Right? And, and but you all know the journey that we go through. Again, Jana had the, the Tuckman curve on there. You know it's going to take time before we get to be a really good team. So during that growth period, there's always these massive opportunities and we can really get better at that. We can really get better at that. And actually a small amount of effort can yield quite big game changing, you know, headline grabbing changes in that, that team's effectiveness. And great teams do that as well, but they don't get complacent when they get to that sort of Pareto principle 80-20 zone. They keep pushing. And even when it's small improvements, you know, they're, 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 in, a, they're in a habit. Um, and I, in my book, I cite Dave Brailsford, who is a guy who um, was, was a coach of the Team GB cycling team. And one of the things that he brought in was this concept of you know, tiny gains, you know, improving everything. And I mean, everything from the comfort of the seats to the pillows that the, the, the cyclists would use when they go to bed at night to how they wash their hands, everything. His view was that if you could improve everything by 1%, then the compound impact of all of those tiny gains would be massive. And while each of those little changes was very, very marginal, you know, these marginal gains added up to, in their case, record medal hauls. And I've seen similar kinds of attitudes towards self-improvement in the great teams that I've worked with. You know, and this sense of the milestones. Today, we improve the little things. That milestone is often a lot more important than a big change that we make in a retrospective, for example. Get a little bit better every day. That's even more powerful. Um, next thing I wanted to talk about quickly was quality. Okay, so all good teams look at how they can avoid problems. I don't think you could really ethically call yourself or morally call yourself a good team if you weren't working out how you could mitigate the risk of things going wrong. Doing a bit of planning, doing a bit of risk mitigation. Yeah, that's, that's quite normal for good teams. But great teams go even further. Now, great teams know that there are unknown unknowns. But they, just, they don't just take that as an opportunity to ignore it. They don't say, 
well, I can't plan for it because I don't know what's going to happen. So if you don't know what's going to happen, you can't do anything about it. Instead, what they tend to do is they look at developing their ability to respond calmly when any kind of unexpected event hits. Yes, they'll prepare for what they can prepare for, but they'll also be working on developing their resilience, their ability to cover each other, their ability to think rationally when chaos is going on around them. And my, my favorite story in the book is actually in this section because it shocks a few people when they read it, but I'm not gonna give you any spoilers. You know, I just have to read it for yourselves. Great teams are driven by, well, I, I said this already, a pride in their work, right? They have this sort of personal sense of attachment to the reputation of what they're building. And, and they, you know, they're developing resilience, they're developing redundancy within their ranks so that they can kind of cope with almost anything that gets thrown at them. And this is a slightly dangerous thing for me to say, but it, again, I've seen it, so I'll report back. A lot of the great teams that I've seen actually see new problems as something cool in a way. Now, what I mean by that is they see it as an opportunity to test themselves against something new. It's, it's like a, a new achievement that they can unlock because they know they're going to learn something. They have confidence that somehow they'll find a way around it. Or in some cases, the view that, well, if we can't find a way around it, there's a good chance that nobody else would have been able to do any better. So what's there to lose? Um, and I find that really, really interesting, seeing this, this thing that comes up out of nowhere, this monster. Most people would be scared of it and run away from it. A great team thinks, cool, challenge. Uh, and that's, that's a, a big thing that sets them apart. The part of my book that in many ways was, I suppose, the easiest to write was about unity, because I think everyone really knows that good teams stick together, they're united, you know, they have a bond, they have a commitment to each other. But on the other hand, I think it was paradoxically also the most difficult to write, because despite all that awareness, you know, the, the Tuckman model has been around for you know, 60 years, and yet there are so many teams out there that haven't gone through that storming phase well and ended up high performing. And I found that fascinating. Um, so a lot of teams have goals, all right? That's, that's a good thing. Goals are important because without a sense of purpose and objective that we're trying to solve or you know, yeah, that, that, that um, task that we want to complete, we haven't even got a chance of becoming a good team. Plenty of teams have goals. Uh, okay, you, you could say that um, they could do with some work, you could make them more personable, inspiring, engaging, meaningful, whatever, and that would increase their effect, and I would probably have to agree with you on that one, but they have a goal. What surprises me is that so few teams have a strong identity that binds them, you know? And it surprises me because I haven't seen one great team that doesn't have a strong identity, that doesn't know what they stand for as a team, that doesn't know what they expect of each other, that hasn't taken into account their own personal likes, their personal values, their personalities, their skills of the individual team members, and crafted them into something bigger and better. I haven't seen one great team without a strong identity. And I think it's important because, not just from the team perspective, but from the individual perspective, if I'm gonna be a member of a team, and if I'm gonna be a, you know, a useful member of a team, there's no getting past the fact that I'm gonna to have to give up or trade off a little part of me 
I'm not talking about a physical limb or anything, but actually a little bit of my own personal selfish objectives. Because there may well be times when I need to sacrifice what I'm personally interested in because the team needs something else from me. And that's often glossed over, sort of, well, let's just not talk about it because you know, that might put people off wanting to be part of the team. Now, hopefully the trade is mutually beneficial yeah, because that's how trades work. I have something, you have something, uh, we trade, we're both better off. And for me, that's where this identity comes in. That's what I'm getting in return for trading off a little bit of my personal selfish objectives. And it's a, it was just amazing for me that so many of the teams that I've worked with just haven't had that. Um, but there you go. That is such is life. Audacity. Um, personally, I, I, I like this. Uh, for those of you that have read, it, read any of my other books, you'll kind of notice a little bit of a theme going on, that this sense of bravery. It is, um, you know, it is you know, both uh, Sujit and Yana talked a lot about taking a step forward, taking steps into the unknown. And that always requires a sense of bravery. It's not acting without fear. You don't have to be brave if you're not scared. You know, you kind of should be scared. Um, you have to be scared if you're going to be brave. Um, and what I found fascinating about the teams that were brave, you know, they all challenge processes. They all challenge policies, limits, systems, assumptions, all sorts of things. They take risks. They risk failure. They basically just go for it. Is that they didn't treat audacity as binary. And I think if I was to, you know, when I first came across that as a concept, and I thought back to my view of audacity, I think I'd have to admit that I would classify bravery, audacity, as a binary concept. You either are brave or you're not. And I think that was a false assumption of mine. And this perhaps even a limiting belief. I think you know, a lot of these great teams have looked at this thing and thought, okay, we're brave enough to try this. One of the great things about doing that is that you're starting to expand your comfort zone and you're also building your bravery or audacity muscle, if you like. When, so the slogan here says, a good team catches their teammates doing things wrong. A great team catches their teammates doing things right. I was, to use a really fantastic English phrase for you, flabbergasted. Um, when, you know, I thought, catching people doing things right would be so much easier and so much more commonplace than catching people doing things wrong so for me having to tell somebody that they're not doing something right sort of brings me up in a bit of a sweat i don't like the conflict how are they going to react giving people feedback you know, that kind of thing but actually saying oh nice job yeah, you did that really really well you know well done um well done for, for whatever it was that you were doing picking out the good behaviors in action should be a lot easier but i found the opposite I found, maybe it's maybe it's just the fact that I've lived in the UK for so long. We don't like telling people, and maybe you know, someone can tell me it's a, it's a cultural thing. But we do seem to find it easier to just sort of um, miss out on those specific appreciations. You know, a specific, not just saying well done, but well done for. You know, I appreciate you for this. You know, thank you for doing this. That I think is a really simple place to start for a lot of great teams, and that sense of you know, if that is difficult then that is brave for those individuals. That is, that is audacious for that team. Brilliant. Start there, build up to something else. And the final thing, I've left this till last because for many organizations, I think this is the big worry about agile teams. You know, uh, Sujit mentioned that in, in a, beta, uh, a B2B or B2C environment, there's always a, there's always a date, right? And there's stuff we need to do. 
And I think, you know, speaking to a lot of leaders over the years, this idea of letting go of control and giving teams um, autonomy scares them. Um, and they worry about, well, what am I going to get in return? So and then, we, then we have people come along and say, oh, you need to make people happy. You know, this is all about mental health awareness and, and you know, all the good stuff that we talk about, psychologically safe environments and leaders thinking, yeah, yeah, but I still need my dates. I still need my deliveries. Come on. Um, I don't mind indulging this hippie stuff as long as I still get my stuff. And their, their concern is that they're not going to get twice the work in half the time. All right. Now, don't get me started on books that encourage that with their titles. Um, but teams will actually, in many ways, take a dip before they become hyper-performing. Or at least appear to, because we're factoring in the whole life cycle now. And that, but team, great teams don't forget about delivery. And not just because other people want them to, but it's just like with self-improvement, it's something that they want to do. These teams enjoy creating things that are used. They enjoy giving people something valuable. Now, good teams will use the agile approach and the built-in you know, cadences within something like Scrum, for example, the rhythm of the framework to become predictable in a good way. Right? So, and that's great because we can be relied upon to deliver stuff in a, you know, in a time box. That's useful for planning, expectation management, and so on. But great teams don't just find a rhythm. You know, they find flow, that magical, well, almost magical, feeling of you know sort of forgetting that time is a concept you know stuff gets done really really quickly effectively and it feels great when you're in flow now everyone's experienced that at some point maybe not at work maybe outside of work but they've experienced it at some point now what i found interesting is great teams get into flow a lot more frequently than other teams and it's not an accident they do it consciously now, a lot of people, when they define flow, say it's very hard to know what it is until you've been in it. So if you don't know what it is, how can you actually create it? Well, the teams that I've seen, they look for patterns. So they look for contextual patterns. So they look for the environment. They look for times of day. They look for situations, problems. They look for anything that will indicate, yeah, this is something that was there when we had flow last time. And they'll keep logging these things and they will just tweak their environments, they'll tweak their, um, tweak their, their, their layout, their setup, their conversations, their working patterns, their environment in an effort to try and replicate that and maximize their chances of getting into flow. And when they do that, they do tend to over deliver. And it's not because they've rushed it, it's not because they've cut quality, it's not because they've worked overtime, it's not because they deliberately played those games of under committing and over deliver, they just get into flow and smash it. And I think that's, fascinating um, but you, it, it's got to be that way round. if you're going into this with the objective of getting twice the work in half the time you won't get that i think that's my time box possibly more apologies if i've blown it alex jeff spot on <laughs> thank you very much um Really great talks from the three of you, and uh, I, some great questions have been pulled in here. Um, so I'm going to go straight up. Uh, so to, um, what is your, uh, you came from a project management background. What is your opinion on the hybrid agile PM slash scrum master role that we so often see companies advertising for? Is this to me, Alex? 
that sorry Jeff that one was to you yes okay um, what's my opinion on it uh, I think it's my problem with with it really is do the people that are asking for it know what they're getting or know what they're asking for so you could well have put me in that category um, but equally you could put my boss in that category and we're two very very different people uh, I think we're both good people but I think we're very very different and we could have the same job title but approach the role and be a very different cultural fit for different organizations uh, so I think uh, the, the, the danger with any kind of role, I mean, even the role scrum master, uh, there are different sort of philosophical approaches on what, a, you know, what, what, what kind of scrum master that you want to be. Um, so I don't think you can really use any role to, to, to get the, or, or certainly assure yourself of getting the person or the impact that you're looking for. Um, and I know from my limited exposure to recruitment that that's not the point. Um, you know, it's always going to be part of the puzzle, right? There's always going to be a conversation. There's always going to be um, a sort of values alignment and a, you know, a cultural alignment and so on. Um, my, my, my worry is that um, if it's an early part of the process, then some people might feel they need to change who they're putting themselves out there as in order to get through the door. And one of the things I really liked about Jana's talk was being the best you you know and uh, what there's that's a, a better version of you and I, I, I think people shouldn't be afraid of it saying you know i am a scrum master now i can apply for an agile pm role will i still get a conversation with somebody about what i think i can do to help them meet their objectives while having a different role and i think that's my main worry with it okay thank you very much um, to Sujit, um, how do you drive innovation at PaySafe? Um, so to Jeff's point, right? I mean, I, I think innovation's almost got to be organic to a firm, right? Um, so one of the things that we've largely done within PaySafe is that unlike most organizations, what we don't have are guardrails, right? We, we haven't standardized the tooling within the organization, right? Um, we haven't um, kind of, so while we've kind of almost built out the standards to say, these are the standards that you need to comply to, um, as a firm, we're actually not prescriptive um, about solving for business problems, right? So very early in the cycle, uh, we have kind of institutionalized the element of uh, um, build versus buy, right? Where, I mean, we, we, we kind of, um, so the mantra largely is that, you know, um, one way to kind of have a build and deliver products fast is actually to write the least amount of code. So early in the cycle, right, um, massive emphasis on build versus buy where we kind of almost incentivize the teams um, to pull together solutions as innovatively as possible. And within the development life cycle itself, um, we've, we've kind of gone very heavily into the open source uh, ecosystem, right? So in essence, there are no guardrails. As long as we comply to the standards, what we've done is regimented our, um, our CI/CD pipeline. We've regimented our, um, um, how we log and monitor, right? But the entire thought process very much is around building that culture, right? So I mean, so the classic example that we, we give is that 
going into production, things will always break, right? You're never going to be in a scenario where you're going to write perfect code. But how that culture develops is that if I have an outage, right, and it takes me six hours to rec recover from that outage, you inherently build an organization that is risk averse and then they put in all the checks and regimented guardrails that are needed to prevent that as an outcome, right? But if you build out an ecosystem where if there is an outage, we are able to actually recover in um, under five minutes, um, a lot of that culture around wanting to build guardrails goes away, right? But the entire, so unlike most organizations, we don't actually have an innovation hub, right? Um, innovation is very much organic to the teams. And again, no path is uh, perfect, right? So I, I think the ecosystem that we followed does come at a, at a cost, um, but as long as the benefits outweigh the costs, um, it seems to work for us, right? Thank you, Sujit. To Yana, what inspires you? That is such a hard but simple question. Um, I think what inspires me the most is meeting that person that gives me a challenge because they challenge me to come up with new options and a different version of myself to learn. Okay, yep. short Simply and sweet, it. brilliant. <laughs> uh, to, so this one is actually to all three of you. Now what I've found has worked well in the past when the same question has gone to multiple speakers is that we sort of maybe put a time box on your answers. So if we can try and you know, keep your answers to 30 seconds each. Um, the question is, is what advice would you give to someone breaking into the world of Scrum or Agile on a larger scale? Jeff, I'll go to you first. If you could try and keep your answer to 30 seconds, as I say to it's all three of you. I hope this isn't going to use up my 30 seconds, but can you just repeat it again? It's something to do with larger scale. <laughs> of course. So it's what advice would you give to someone breaking into Scrum or Agile on a wider scale? Okay, okay. So breaking into it, I, I mean, first of all, as with anything, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal from, from the other people's talks today, is it's how does it match who you are? I think there's... The great thing about an agile approach is there are there are so many ways for you to to fulfill your or actually increase your fulfillment um, but it's got to be something that matches your personal values so work out what's important to you and then find a role in an organization that allows you to live them thank you and to sujit yeah very much along what jeff said right man i think at the end of the day it just comes down to um adapting to that wider ecosystem, right? So, so I think Jeff spoke about the individual from an enterprise perspective. I think you get a good starting point in terms of bedding it, but then how we evolve and scale it totally comes down to the organization culture and you know what works well. Um, so adapt to the organization's personality. Thank you, Sujit and Yana. Uh, I would say check yourself. Before you wreck yourself, I stick to it. If you're about to think about scaling and growing, really draw boundaries for yourself. What do you know that you are comfortable at doing and that you feel confident at? What areas that do you feel more weak at? And I would say find someone that you can consult or that you can get some advice from to get feedback as you're testing and learning. Because um, if I reference back to Jeff, he actually put squads up 
you're not the only person starting this journey. Every speaker and a lot of people in this meetup, we've all gone on a similar journey. And although it's not going to be your journey and it's not going to be the same, scaling and that complexity, it's taking bits from other people's learnings and applying your own to really make it successful. That's my answer. Thanks, Jana. To Jeff. Um, other than your own, can you recommend any books or other literature that can help me on my agile journey? It's a it's a difficult one because I I would I would in, I'd want to know more um, because I think you know, if you're interested in being a product owner, I could direct you to different books. If you're interested in being uh, a business analyst, maybe it's something else. Um, so I suppose it, it, with with the with the generic question like that, um, Mike Cohn's books are great. Uh, if you wanted to learn about agile stuff if you wanted to go into sort of more of the, the philosophical underpinnings one of my favorite books that, that i found really really useful when i was, was starting out was the goal by Goldratt. um just the, the sort of principles of uh, that, that really underpin what agile is in many ways even though it's a complete you know it's nothing to do with software development and it's actually quite a daunting book when you look at it it's quite thick but it's a really easy read um and i think it's a, a bit of an eye-opener in many different ways Thanks, Jeff. To Sujit, how has COVID-19 impacted PaySafe? Um, so surprisingly, not, a, not as extensively as we initially thought, right? So I, I think PaySafe in, in itself is probably not very different from a lot of firms out there, right? Um, we were able to make the transition to an all remote um, working ecosystem relatively fast, literally no bumps there, right? Um, probably goes down to the industry that we were in. Um, and from a pure business perspective, like many organizations, I think we went into toxic shock in April. Um, May is kind of, we're kind of emerging from that element of shock to realize it's probably wasn't as bad as we thought um, it would be. Um, hopefully the story just keeps getting better, right? So, so as disruptive as COVID was in terms of changing things, um, in my mind, irrevocably in, for the future, um, the both, you know, the environment as well as the uh, business as a whole continue to be pretty resilient. Thank you, Sujit. To Jeff, when Is it just me that didn't get that? Looks like he's frozen up. No. No. Alex. Can you repeat that, uh, please, Alex? Looks like you've frozen up. Can you try to reestablish? Oliver Bernard, you are out. Uh, Sorry, Jeff. I've, I've got, I'm, I'm back in now. I think my okay. internet connection was a little unstable. So um, it just so look, wasn't I, me. That's good. Yeah, it was, I think it was me. Um, so I'll repeat the question. Uh, when providing feedback to a team and being audacious, how should personality types play a role in how we deliver and receive feedback? Um, I think you should always be aware of your audience. Uh, I think in general, yeah, there are a number of things that human beings have in common. Um, but for me, the first thing with regards to feedback is, well, there are two really important things with regards to feedback. It's more important, it's more useful if it's been asked for. Um, so just like you know, in my coaching work, I really try hard, sometimes I fail, but I really try hard to, to not go around inflicting my help on people. Um, equally, I don't want to go around inflicting feedback on people. 
if people want my feedback, I'll happily provide it. Um, and that goes two ways as well, because if people give me some advanced warning about the feedback that they're looking for, I can be more, more mindful about what I'm looking out for and more helpful in what I'm offering. Um, I think the second thing for me is, is around just knowing the sort of normal processing journey that we go through. Um, we used to teach people about the SARA model, where the first response is shock or surprise. Uh, often if it hasn't been asked for, you know, wh wh why are you saying this, you know? And the next one is often anger. You know, how dare you? Who are you to, to tell me, to give me that kind of feedback yeah, before you can rationalize it, which is the R. Um, the other R is rejection. Um, and as, as a person receiving feedback, you know, Yana talked a lot about feedback, I've got to be aware, I've got to be aware of being able to take that feedback as with the pinch of salt that it deserves, right? It's their perception. It's not true, it's not fact, it's their truth, but it might not be truth to me and it might not be useful to me. Um, so I, I don't just take it just because it's been offered. I should consider it and then reject it if it's not useful to me. But if it is useful to me, then I'll accept it um, and I'll, I'll take it on board. Uh, so being aware where, where those people are on that curve, you, know, you hear, heard the whole phrase of sleep on it. Quite often, you, know, you need to let people sleep on things. Um, and just process it sometimes subconsciously on their journey home from work or something. Um, I didn't, I didn't like the whole, we used to have these um, orange chairs in the office at BT. So there's no orange furniture in our house because they were, they were the feedback chairs. You know, the boss would come along uh, from another office. He'd come in and make his way over to the orange comfy chairs. And one by one, we'd be called over for our feedback session. And you'd just be dreading it, you know, it'd be once, once every six months or something. Um, and yeah, that, 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 that sort of formality of it, I don't really like. Thank you. Uh, to Yana, uh, what advice would you give to somebody um, when going through an agile transformation uh, from a waterfall environment if it's just not being accepted? Thanks. I think for me, this is probably the hardest thing is when you are that first agile person, understand what they know is their base and core knowledge. If it is waterfall, don't be afraid to pick up Prince 2 or maybe P3O or MSP or some of those core knowledge that they have and try and take them on that journey of transitioning across into agile. Because usually what I've found is it's either coming from fear, they feel like they're not going to have a role or they were the best PM or delivery lead or something and they feel that that purpose or how they identify themselves might not be the same if you go into an agile. But really it's not about agile waterfall or how do you bring them, but it's about that outcome. What is that project? What is the purpose of that change in that project and wrapping it around? Don't say, I'm gonna teach you this and it's better, but come in with, we're gonna start problem solving differently. I'm gonna be using techniques from Scrum or other agile techniques, and we're just gonna introduce them in as a step-by-step. -step. And what you wanna do is build the trust of those around you first, rather than, I like to say, throw the guide at them. <laughs> That's kind of my answer. Find that commonality and start with that and build up. 
and you will get that transition and it will be hard because every action has an equal and opposite reaction and you've got to be prepared for that force. And you have to, what I like to say, and once I train the product owners is, is learn how to counter the message before it comes back. So Agile isn't working, product owner or team, we've solved this problem that we wouldn't have solved in the old way or in the way we were thinking. You've got to have your messages very clear and you've got to always counteract as a team or a unit. So you might join a team that might not be bought in at the start, but you've really got to build that trust because they are the advocates for the change. Thank you very much, Anna. And that's the end of the questions for this evening. I'd like to say a really special thanks to Sujit, Yana and Jeff for your fantastic, um, engaging and really insightful talks this evening. Thank you very much. Um, we actually hit record numbers for Remote Agile London tonight. So uh, thank you to everyone for getting involved and joining. You know, it's really appreciated. Um, just a closing statement so, uh, from myself. You know, I, I said this on our Product London meetup last night. We're certainly starting to see a bit of a positive change in the world of recruitment. Um, and I'm not saying that we've got vacancies coming out of our ears at the moment, but we are slowly starting to see things trickle through and are confident that will continue. So um, if you are looking for something new, um, you know, my name is Alex Scriven. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Link in to me and I will um, reach out to anyone within my company that will be able to help you for the technology that you cover or area you work in. Um, so thank you very much. The slides will be up um, and the video will be shared through our communities page, which has a link to our Oliver Bernard YouTube page. Again, thank you very much, Jeff, Lana and Sujit for this evening. Um, really enjoyed those, those talks. And I, I will see everyone next week. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys.